Let's turn to John's Gospel anywhere, and I think we'll get to it. I want to clear the deck before I start today so that we can have necessary, absolute concentration on the message which is about to come because I think it's central to what I've been teaching since the beginning of our study of the fourth G, as we called it, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And it's going to be central to the things that I'll be developing. This is All these truths are going to be fanned out. And with regard to that, this, there were some changes this week. First of all, as we've announced, our beloved brother Jack Rickard has been received into the glorious presence of the Lord of glory, as you know. And we remember him as a truly gentle man with the gentle emphasizing the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And I'm honored to be able to share in the memorial service that will happen this Tuesday, June 6th at 2 p.m. The place is Grace Methodist Church and it's 712 Church Street in Indiana, PA, where everything started, for me at least, in November 18th, 1978, right in that heart of that place. And appropriate to Jack, it's on D-Day, June 6th, Deliverance Day. Now, there is, I want to also make a change in the schedule this week, and important, and I hope you'll listen carefully to it, because I'm urging attendance upon the next message. Um, And then I want to pray something that I cannot, I have to pray it with you before I teach because it's a, it, it would be a distraction to the message because it's weighing, you know, it's one of those things that I want you all to join me in prayer with. And the first thing is, on the lighter note, it happens, and I've put this off for many, many years, but there, once in a while it happens, even in a pastor's life, that a project comes up in your household which has tremendous urgency associated with it. I've held this off for years and years. Now it's come to roost, and I'm required to be present in this urgent underground project at my home for the next week. So the somewhat pale rider, be careful not to get too much of a tan if you're going to be a pale rider. Pastor Brian Messick will be bringing a message this Wednesday, and I'm excited about it. I, I happen to be very thrilled about what God is doing in Brian and what he's doing in his study. And his message will fit in critically to the flow of what the Holy Spirit is bringing to this church. And so I hope you'll all attend as much many as you can. I know there's lots of stuff going on this time of year. But I urge you all to attend. I'm not going to say so that he can stir up his gift because he's done that and he's developed it very well. Some of you may not have heard Brian yet. I think you should come and listen because he has a truly spirit-born message and a well-developed gift. And I'd almost, if I was going to be sentimental, I'd say I'm almost proud of you, but I won't do that. I'm proud of all of you too. But this has been weighing on my heart. My son Jared has a half-brother, and they share the same birth mother. And he's in his 20s, I believe. His name is Austin. And Jared regards him, of course, as a full brother and has loved him and really kind of almost taken him under his wing. But Austin was in a recent car accident, a very serious one, and he's been in a comatose state now for... Sometime the doctors give him little to no hope at all. Um, Jared and his wife Sasha went to see him yesterday, and were at his bedside. So I just wanted to pray that God will intrude into this situation. I know some of you already have been, but I have to pray this now to get it off my soul and mind and lift it to God, so I can concentrate on this message. So if you'll just join me in your own way. I just want to pray that prayer right now, first in silence. Father, we come to you to address a situation that has been pronounced pretty much hopeless by the medical community, and 
perhaps their medical estimate is accurate. We don't know. But if you're willing, we pray that you'll intervene in a way that is miraculous to your glory for Austin and for his mom and brothers and family. And that you'll be with his mom, Karen, with Jared and Evan in this time of great burden. If it is your will, Father, you can intervene miraculously. If it is your will to do otherwise, we know that you will also intrude into this situation with your love, your grace, your compassion, your mercies, and your kindness. We expect it, and we expect it to be demonstrated in ways which will evoke the thanksgiving of many when all is said and done. So we present him to you, we present Austin to you today. And know that he's in your care and in the nail-scarred hands of your son and in the spirit of grace. And now in agreement with the prayer that's already been prayed, we pray that you'll open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word, the sum total of which amounts to your son so that we can gaze into the mirror of the word and be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. In his name we pray, amen. Today I want to revisit what I consider to be one of the most important doctrines in the scripture called the divine missions, the divine missions. And I want to just bring some preliminary facts, hit the ground running with some preliminary facts and principles about the divine missions and they're going to st- I'll just hit you with them. I don't usually do this, but I'll hit you with them one by one. First, there are two divine missions. That's the simple fact. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent by a divine person or persons of the Trinity into human history and into humanity and creation itself. I'll repeat that second part. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent by divine person or persons of the Trinity into human history and into humanity and the creation itself. The second preliminary fact and principle, the divine missions are universal. And we'll fan this out and give a lot of scriptural documentation, but the divine missions are universal in that the entry of the Trinity into human history is into the whole of humanity and into the creation at large dramatically and permanently impacts All of human history, all of humanity, all of creation in all of their times and places. Let me repeat that again. These just came to me this morning as I woke up. They're sort of spontaneous, spontaneous after seven or eight years of study. The divine missions are universal in that the entry of the Trinity into human history, into the monolith of humanity or the totality of humanity, and into the creation at large, dramatically and permanently impacts all of human history, all of humanity, and all of creation in all of their times and places. Third, the divine missions are salvific. That means they're redeeming, they are saving, they are reconciling, but they are salvific. That's a word we wanted you to get acquainted with when we started this whole thing, salvific. It's kind of a technical theological term, but it has to do with the Savior, Jesus Christ, and with the act, God's act of salvation in Christ for the creation. So the third point is the divine missions are salvific. They are the way that the Trinity invades the present evil age. They are the way that the Trinity invades the present evil age, as Galatians 1.4 calls it. In order to save humanity and creation 
from the suprahuman powers that enslave and oppress them. Those powers include sin as a principle and an enslaving power, death, principalities and powers, and even the Torah, the law, which in itself is pure and just and holy, but which sin and death have hijacked and used for their own enslaving purposes, so that in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, the strength of sin is in the law now, and so that has to be remedied. The fourth principle under divine missions, in saving humanity and all creation, which we call saving the world, the divine missions redeem history from its roller coaster of progress and decline. History itself is redeemed from its roller coaster of progress and decline. History right now is on, in one sense, a technological progressive line, but in a moral and spiritual sense on a declining function. In our country, we have a rabid divisiveness that is not born of ideology, but expressive of the human condition. It's important that we see in history the human condition as it really is, because that's the condition from which we are redeemed. That's very important. That's where theology goes beyond political science. So some of you that are still, still considering a major for college, young folks, consider at least taking a course in theology. But don't take one taught by an idiot, whatever you do. Now, you say, does that mean you teach? No, no, no. Yes, I teach theology, and I am from time to time an idiot. It's part of the human condition. But in saving humanity and all of creation, the divine missions redeem history from its roller coaster of ups and downs, or we could say progress, progress and decline. And just as all of enslaved humanity is the target of the divine missions, so is all of the enslaved creation... And so is all of history. Again, there's much more documentation to follow on all this as we fan out on it. All of history is redeemed, including the past, including your past, including my past, all of it. Listen carefully. All of history is redeemed by the divine missions, including the past, which is poetically depicted as crops eaten by locusts in Joel 2.25. But he strangely says, Yahweh does, God says, I will restore the years, not the crops, the years that the locust has eaten. Joel 2.25a. He says the years that the locust ate, not the crops they ate. This goes to the redemption of time. And as believers in Christ, as those who are functioning in the power of God and it relieved from the pressure and power and oppressiveness of sin and the fear of death, we actually have within our power the ability to redeem time itself for the days are evil. In evil days, believers redeem time from evil a day at a time. Jesus prayed, taught us to pray, we could say, deliver us from evil. And then at the end of his days of his flesh, he answered that prayer Because the scripture says that God sent his son who died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. The prayer has been answered and is being answered. Ephesians 5.16, redeem the time because the days are evil. We could say is we can redeem time from the effects of evil one day at a time by staying within a field of renewal which is created by the Holy Spirit, the word and by created participation in the uncreated life and faithfulness of God, which is our privilege and our great honor as believers. So, I will restore the years that the locust has eaten. This goes, therefore, to the redemption of time and of history itself, which is, in one sense, a creation of God. History itself and time itself is a creature or a creation of God. And so it, too, is to be redeemed, and salvifically so, by God. So this goes to the redemption of time and of history itself, which, in one sense, is a creation of God, which is destined 
to a created participation in God's uncreated omnipresence. History, in other words, is going to participate in God's own omnipresence in a created sense. History is redeemed because of God's presence in it from past, present, and future. And that's something we will also have to fan out on and teach a little more clearly. The future then is also redeemed because the evils that would befall the creation and humanity in the waning time of history or the final time of judgment, as people like to say, will have already been born by Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The future is also redeemed because the evils and disasters that which would befall the creation and humanity in the waning time of history will have already been born and endured by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the center of history, which is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not only the center of history, but the climax of history, and in one sense, it's the end of history of the evil age. So I'm going to say that part again because it's important. The future is also redeemed for us and for all creation and all of humanity because the evils that would befall the creature and the creation and humanity in the waning time of history will have been born already by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the center of history as the climax of his visible divine mission. That's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, regarding the past and the future, Kazeman, Ernst Kazeman, who wrote the famous commentary on Romans, with which I partly agree and partly disagree, but he said, Ernst Kazeman wrote the following in his commentary on Romans, and I'm applying this to the redemption of history. Notice what he said. I think it's profound. The Christ who died for us also lives for us and destroys the threats of the future as he destroyed the evil power of the past. He is, in person, the irreversible for us of God. Hence the change of destiny. He speaks of a change of destiny of mankind in Romans chapter 5. A destiny because one bearer of human destiny was Adam, and by his disobedience all die. And the change of destiny came with the first divine mission, Christ, who because of his obedience all are made alive, so that in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The fifth of 14 preliminary points, I had to stop because it was quarter after nine and I hadn't dressed yet, so, you know. Uh, The fifth point, the divine missions are guaranteed to be successful. The divine missions are guaranteed to be successful precisely because they are divine missions. To attribute failure to God would be blasphemy. To attribute failure to God would be blasphemy. Like the scripture said, this is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Even the Christian spiritual life, great connotation to this. It is not uncircumcision or circumcision, but it is faith working by love. Faith working by God's love. The spiritual life, therefore, is a divine action in believers. A divine action in believers. He says again in Galatians 6.15, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that avails anything, but a new creation. A new creation is an act of God in Christ. It is an act of God. It is not our act. Neither is our spiritual life. It's not our act. It's an enactment of God using human beings, as we will see. And is God in you both what? Willing and doing of his own Good pleasure. Unfortunately, most of the years of our life on earth are spent getting out of the way of God so that that reality can be a truth in our lives. In Philippians 2.13, God in us both willing and doing. God in us both willing and doing. And unfortunately, it takes people sometimes decades of their Christian experience to let that be true. And that's just the way it is. But if you spend 50 years getting out of the way and you have two more years to live, those two years can be eminently productive, even to the point of a lifetime of production. So then six, the first divine mission is that of the Son of God. 
who proceeded from the Father in an eternal, internal procession called begetting. He's called the only begotten Son of God because he proceeded from the Father in an internal, eternal procession called begetting. I'll fan that out later, and I have fanned it out in our John study. The second divine mission is that of the Spirit of God's Son. He's called the Spirit of God the Father's Son. The whole Trinity is found there in Galatians 4, 6. God sent forth, sent out from himself, or sent forth, ex apostello, the Spirit of his Son. The Spirit of his Son. Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Crying out, Abba, Father. And that means using our lips to speak the words of God's Son. Galatians 4, 6. So again, sixth, the sixth point again reiterated. The first divine mission is that of the Son of God who proceeded from the Father in an internal, eternal procession called begetting. The second divine mission is that of the Spirit. This is the seventh point. The second divine mission is that of the Spirit of God's Son who proceeded from the Father and the Son by an internal, eternal procession called spiration. We've seen that before, or eternal breathing. The eighth point, the prophetically projected success. In the scriptures, there are a few places where even God takes the ball and throws it as far as he can in history. And when he, we see the ball thrown as far as God throws it, we see the prophetically projected success of the divine missions. Passages that I recommend you read on this subject is the prophetically projected success of the divine missions is found in such peak passages in Paul as Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, Colossians 1, 20, which he speaks of the reconciliation of everything in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, all the way down to the least of creation and through the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of his Son, put Colossians one twelve with one twenty, and you got that together. And especially First Corinthians fifteen twenty four to twenty eight, where it says, "When he has finished reigning, the Son submits himself to the Father, and the Son submits the kingdom over which he has ruled to the Father, so that God may be all in all. God all in all is the furthest the ball is thrown, and it shows the eminent." final universal salvific success of the divine missions. Now, it's important that we have this vision in front of us because it gives us hope. It's an eschatological hope. It rivets our souls and it, it becomes an anchor for our soul in the waves of life and in the storms of life and in the very important time in which you're entering into the year of the soft target in which Evil is focusing on soft targets in a cowardly and vicious way to express the anguish and anger of the principalities and powers who are losing their power. And again, when you view, do not be troubled because on the news and in the news and across the board, you are being placed before you a divisiveness and a bitter hatred toward one another, a divisiveness that is very destructive in our country. It is not born ultimately of ideological and political differences. It is expressive of the human condition without redemption. And that's why this message is so important. Because without the vision that's being presented of the success of these two divine missions, the people perish. And that means they fall apart. They lose the sense of any kind of civil establishment. They lose a sense of propriety, of politeness, of honor and thoughtfulness toward others, of a preference to others. And they lose this and they become, the scripture says, savage, brutal, barbaric, and merciless. That's the result of having no vision. And the vision I'm talking about is the vision I'm putting before your eyes, a vision, Paul said, of Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. Jesus Christ and him risen. Jesus Christ and him elevated and enthroned at the right hand of the Father and ruling over the universe and ruling over the dead and ruling over the living. Very important. And so, that's why I just want to let you know, those of you that like practical application, there is some there. 
In fact, there's a lot there. So the eighth point, I'll reiterate, the prophetically projected success of the divine missions is found in such peak passages in Paul as Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, Colossians 1, 20, and perhaps especially 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, where the final word is God all in all. The ninth point of our preliminary discussion on divine missions, the first divine mission is amply documented in the scripture, notably in John's gospel and John's apocalypse called the book of Revelation, as well as in the Pauline epistles, which we're studying now under Better Call Paul, all of Paul's epistles put together. This first divine mission, the mission of the Son, amply documented in all these. Tenth, that this mission is universal, is evident from John one twenty nine, our first introduction to Jesus in his ministry from John the baptizer. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the universal sense of his mission is found there. Also in John 3:17a, God sent his son into the world. That's into the into human history, into the whole monolith of human beings and into creation itself. So that the divine, first divine mission is universal is found in John 3.17a. For example, God sent his son into the world. That the mission is salvific or saving as well as universal is found in 3.17b. God sent his son not to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved through him. The world there, God loved the world so much that he gave his son. The world is not only the world of humankind in all of its times and places, which appears as a single mass in front of the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. It also includes all of creation, which is under the enslavement to the oppressive power of sin and death, according to Romans eight nineteen to 23. And it includes the angelic realm, as we're going to see from John twelve thirty one and John sixteen eleven as well as Colossians 1.20. So that the mission of the Son is universal is evident from John 3.17. A, God sent his Son into the world, and that the mission is salvific or saving is 3.17b, not to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved through him. The 11th point, the mission of the divine Son was visible in every way because he became flesh, And in becoming flesh, he became the particular man, Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And that, therefore, this mission was visible in every way. The word became flesh, and we beheld, observed his glory, full of grace and truth. That's unilateral covenant fidelity, which we'll explain later on. For the law came by Moses, but... Covenant fidelity was demonstrated in Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, the only one. And so the mission of the divine son was visible in any way. Paul said it in preaching about Christ. He said these things were not done in a corner. Christ was visibly crucified. He was suspended between heaven and earth. And the nations were all gathered at that time in Jerusalem and passed by so that, in one sense, the whole world was represented in seeing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So all of it was visible, visible to someone or visible to many. And so he was observed both by angels in 1 Timothy 3.16 and mankind in John 1.14 and all of creation. Even the skies were darkened on the cross and all of the aspects of what we call the Christ event. And remember what the Christ event is. It has seven features. So under point 11, seven other things. Real quick, what is the Christ event? It has seven facets. First, incarnation, the becoming of flesh of the Son of God. Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, and we're going to show you, as I am on Wednesdays and Thursdays generally, that that means everybody, not just the Jews. That means everybody. The law became a universal enslaver because the law was taken in hand by sin, which is 
to all human beings. And so when we were redeemed from the curse of the law, Paul, when he says us, he means U.S., universal, shall I say it, salvation. So, incarnation is the first element. The second element of the Christ event is the life and, listen carefully to this word, vicarious obedience of Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he cried out with great strong crying and tears to the Father and was heard in that he reverenced the, the Father and he demonstrated obedience, though he was the divine son and equal to the Father in every regard. He, was, he learned obedience. His obedience was with regard to the mediation between God and man, which took him to crucifixion. So the second element of his, the Christ event, which is sometimes called the first advent, is the life and vicarious obedience of Jesus Christ. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, whatever the Father does, I'm doing, I'm doing what the Father does. He's, his obedience is implicit. His obedience is all the way through. And in John eight twenty eight, when you have lifted me up, you will know that I did not do my own will, but the one who sent me, and you'll know that I am he. Yahweh, John eight twenty eight. Also in Romans five nineteen, through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the bearer of human destiny in death, all were brought under sin. So by the obedience of one, bearer of human destiny, Jesus Christ, all are delivered or given righteousness or considered righteous or are given justifying life in Romans five eighteen. Now, here's another thing. This, is a, this has got some bite to it, so I'd quoted it, and I'll quote it again. With regard to Christ's obedience, which is for us, now remember that, his obedience is for us. It's vicarious. It's for and as us to the Father. The following was written by a man named Thomas J. Torrance. He also has been received by our glorious Lord into the heavenlies. But he wrote a book called The Mediation of Christ, which I find profound and it is fitting with a lot of the things I've been teaching, so I'm very delighted to read it, but it's, it's hard in some places. He said this, he is a proponent of what is called unconditional grace. Have you ever heard of that before? Unconditional grace. He had some blowback from it. Is that familiar to you? But he said this in his introduction. Some people evidently feel the stress I have laid upon unconditional grace undermines the integrity of the response we are to make in repentance for sin and in acceptance of Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Part of the problem here, he says, is that unconditional grace is too costly. Listen carefully. For it calls in question all that we are and do. So that even in our repenting and believing, we cannot rely upon our own response, but only upon the response Christ has offered to the Father in our place and on our behalf. Why am I saved? I am saved because of the response that Jesus Christ made to the Father on my behalf. And so my faith, which I have, because when I heard this, I believed it. The faith that I have is that I'm justified not by my faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's faith in the gospel. And to all who believe, this gospel is the power of actual real salvation in time right now. Salvation is actually found right there where faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So once again, that's an important thing. I'm saying that quoting because the second aspect of the Christ event is the life that he lived in a vicarious obedience to the Father which ended with, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Speaking for all of humankind, your will be done, Father. What's the Father's will? That all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, 
in a place where the human will could have contested the divine will, Jesus Christ destroyed the contest and spoke for all of us and said, your will be done, the salvation of all mankind. That's 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. But the third element of the Christ event is that his obedience culminated or came to a climax in obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion in Philippians 2.8. And so at the heart of the matter of the Christ event is his crucifixion. Jesus said, because I love my father, I'm going hence, meaning I'm going to the cross because of my love for the father. His love for the father This is obedience to the Father. It was the fulfillment of covenant fidelity for all of humankind. Whatever was required of humankind as an obligation under a covenant was fulfilled by one Jesus Christ. So Peter said it when he had to bring to an end a contest at the Jerusalem conference when some said, well, people have to be circumcised in order to be part of true Israel. They have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Peter said, we believe, meaning the apostolic witness, that we shall be saved as they will be saved, the Gentiles, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul agrees in Romans 5.15. So the obedience of Christ culminated in his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. This obedience brought life to all humankind, even as Adam's disobedience brought death to all humankind. Christ, thank God, is the final bearer of human destiny, not Adam. That's the history that's over with. Fourth aspect of the Christ event is burial. John 19:41 to 42. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. Colossians 2, 12 says that you were buried with him by baptism. And baptism isn't in water. It's baptism by the Spirit into Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. You were buried with him and you were also crucified with him. Remember, the Christ event is very important because we are grafted into his own history. His downward trajectory of crucifixion, death, burial, his upward trajectory, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. You say, well, where does it say we are enthroned? In Ephesians 2.6, we've been raised up together and made to sit together, that's enthroned, in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Where does it say that we were resurrected with him? Colossians 3.1, Romans 6, 1-4, that's where it says we were raised together with him and many other places. Where does it say we were crucified with him? Paul speaking as the eschatological prototype person said, I was crucified with Christ. Where does it say we live? Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. You see, I don't frustrate the grace of God like all of religion does, like most of Christianity does, and like all Christians who never get out of the way of God's grace always do. They frustrate the grace of God. Paul said, I don't. You say, how do you know? I called him. Better call Paul. Paul? Yeah, never mind. The fifth, then, is resurrection. John 20, 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, Colossians 3, 1. The sixth is elevation or ascension. Raised up together with him. Made alive together with him. Raised up together with him. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. And enthronement, where Christ was enthroned as Lord over all creation, over all humanity, over all the ages, over all the nations, over the living and over the dead. So he preached to dead unbelievers the good news of the gospel that his resurrection meant their acquittal in 1 Peter 4, 6. It meant their acquittal. So he preached what? Good news. To who? The dead. Not just the dead. The dead who were disobedient during their lives on earth and did not obey faith. So there's a resurrection as we saw last week. Jesus said those who are, have done good be raised to life. Those who have done evil, they didn't embrace this gift of righteousness, will be raised to krima, krisis, judgment, which means acquittal. 
That's not dividing the human race between the justified and the damned. It's showing the whole human race benefits by the universal impact of the cross of Christ. We'll fan this out. It'll be documented. Because I know some of you don't quite believe it. It's okay. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. So this sevenfold event called the Christ event is salvific or saving in all of its features. And altogether, it's coetaneous with the coming of faithfulness in Galatians 3.23. When faithfulness came, the faithfulness of God came to express itself, that's when Christ came. When Christ came, faithfulness came. The faithfulness by which all are justified. Or given life. So, leave that for now. We'll fan it out later. That's a military strategy I have. Fan out. But here's the initial thrust, the point of the spear. Then we fan out. Twelfth point. The second divine mission is that of the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of God's Son. Galatians 4.6. Thirteenth point. We're going to have a lot more to say on that because we're coming up to it in our Galatians study. The second divine mission may be considered an extension of the first divine mission, that of the Son. In that, A, the mission of the Spirit is in another sense the invisible mission of the Son. Because as Acts 1.1 says, in my former treaties, which is the Gospel of Luke, I told you about what Jesus both began to do and teach. The book of Acts records what he continues to do and teach invisibly in the second divine mission, the mission of the Holy Spirit, which is really an extension of the Son and his mission, his salvific mission, only it's in the invisible mission of the Son, but it eventually starts to use visible human representatives, the body of Christ, the church, and the gifts within the church, including shepherd teachers, prophets, evangelists, Gifts of helps, gifts of mercy, gifts of visiting and counseling and ministry. Expressive of the Son. So then, it also, the second mission, under the 13th point, the second mission can also be conceived as the mission particularly of the Holy Spirit. 14th, listen very carefully to this. The mission of the Spirit is demonstrably, that is clearly revealed in the scriptures, to be universal. We're going to find that out again as we fan these things out. This is just an initial point of the spear on divine missions. The Holy Spirit's mission is universal. Jesus said the Spirit will come and convict the world, persuade the world of sin because they believe not on me, which means the world can't believe in me without the Spirit. Of sin because they do not believe in me. He convicts them of sin, shows them that they're under a power that they cannot extract themselves from because they don't believe in me. The world always has that definition. It doesn't believe in him because nobody believes in him unless the spirit gives the faith. As the scripture says, no one can even call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12.3. That is, no one can say it in a sense of believing allegiance unless the Spirit inspires it. So when every tongue confesses Jesus to be Lord, it's only by the Holy Spirit, which only illustrates that the success of divine mission two is guaranteed and it's universal. In Revelation, we've seen it before, the mathematics of Revelation. The lamb, and I put it in small because he's a little lamb. The lamb is mentioned 28 times. In John, in John or John's Revelation alone, the spirit is called the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits of God. There are seven. That title, the seven spirits of God, is found four times in Revelation. That equals 28. So the Lamb is mentioned 28 times to accentuate the, div- the divine mission of the Son, which is salvific. I saw a Lamb that had been slaughtered and who is standing. I saw a Lamb enthroned, and the Lamb became the lamp of the universe, the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And seven times four means that the seven spirits of God times four 
equals 28, means the second divine mission, that of the Holy Spirit, is to manifest the saving work of the first divine mission, that of the Lamb. You cannot separate the ministry of the Holy Spirit from the mission of the Lamb of God, from the cross of Christ. If the Spirit is active, if the Spirit is motivating a speaker, the centerpiece will always be the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we are not what we are by circumcision or by uncircumcision. May it never be that I should ever boast in everything except and anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I have been crucified to the cosmos, the present evil age. And this present evil age has been crucified with respect to me. It is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Guess who brings the new creation about? God. Guess what the new creation is? God's act. God is the one who calls things that are not into existence. God is the one who raises people from the dead. Not you, not me. The spiritual life is also an act of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit in you. Part of the job of the pastor teacher is to help you get out of the way so that God can enact his desires and his actions in you. But oh, how we fight to preserve the citadel of what we stupidly call our free will. Your will isn't free. Your will is only free when it's liberated by the word of God, by knowing the truth in the Son. Then you're free. To be under the dominion of sin is to be the worst kind of slave. So, There's a lot of social comment I could bring up right now, but I won't because of time. And because, two, it would be boring. So, in John 16, 7, the Spirit convinces the world of sin because it does not believe in Jesus and indeed cannot without the Spirit, without his persuasion. And so God's omnipotence is not demonstrated in wrath, but in persuasiveness of the world. And secondly, he says, he will convict the world or persuade the world of righteousness or the saving act of God in Christ. Because I go to my Father. Because Christ goes to the Father after he finishes the work of redemption and reconciliation and propitiation so that righteousness is the act of God in Christ. The Holy Spirit then convinces the world of righteousness. That means tells it about the divine act of God in Christ so that its faith rests in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Then he says this, and of judgment. And you say, there he is. The Holy Spirit's coming to warn us about being damned to hell for eternity. Jesus said, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And when was the prince of this world judged? When Christ was lifted up on the cross. Christ received the judgment that was intended for the prince of this world and for all the people in the world. Therefore, he drew judgment away from all creatures to himself so that he could draw all creatures, all history, all time, all creation, and all humanity into himself and fulfill God's initial intention, which is to sum up everything in Christ. You got a problem with that? If you do, that's okay. I don't care. So I'll close with this. I'll close by going back to last Sunday. In John 12, let's turn there. I asked you to turn to John, didn't I? When I said turn to John, that whole section actually turned and looked at John Durst back there. It was, it was, weird. It was weird. That was kind of weird. So I mean John's gospel. He's a handsome man, I can imagine why you'd want to turn and look at John. But he's, it's John, I'm talking about John's gospel. It's true in John 12, 31, that the subject of the sentence beginning in John 12, 31 is judgment. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. And it's followed by Now the prince of this world is thrown out, deposed. That means 
not only the prince of the world, but all supernatural, superhuman, oppressive powers are deposed by the act of the cross. This has implications toward angelic redemption that are so stunning that it causes even long-time preachers to back away in horror. The most horrific thing that preachers have to face in this time is not the wrath of God, but the fact that the wrath was taken away by Jesus Christ. That's what scares the hell out of them. Incidentally, I've had the hell scared out of me. I got a book in me. It's called Hell? No! Somebody's already probably done it. You know, every time I think of an original idea, I find out somebody already did it probably. I like Jeremiah 31.3 in the Septuagint, which is 38.3 in the Greek. He said, the Lord appeared to Ephraim from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, have I drawn you. Elko, same word used in John 6.44, to drag somebody, to draw somebody irresistibly. Therefore, I have drawn you in compassion. So the word, as we explored last week, does it mean that this, because the subject of the sentence is judgment, does it mean that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross that he drew all judgment to himself? I say that's a fair assessment. But also, there's another subject of another sentence in 1232, and it happens to be, I, Jesus said, as for me... Jesus said, the double subject being him twice, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all. It doesn't say all people. It doesn't say all creation. It doesn't say all history. It just says all to myself. Now, is he referring to judgment? I think so. But is he also referring to all people? I think so. You see it in the italics in most of your translations because it's not in the original Greek. But can the sense be found? I think so. Why? Here it is. And I I reiterated this. I'm reiterating this from last week. When he says, now the prince of this world is thrown out, and if I'm lifted up, I will drag. The word elko is used in the Greek. It's elko, or sometimes it appears as elkuo. But it's the same word. Elko, E-L-K-O, or E-L-K-U-O. Elko. And so he uses that word, that's the English transliteration, elko. He uses that word elsewhere in John for God drawing people to himself. And the word means drag. It's used for when you drag a net full of fish. It's a drag net. If you remember Jack Webb and drag net, you're old like I am. He would say, just the facts, ma'am. And that's all I'm trying to do today, just the facts. Today, of course, they'd say, you mean F-A-X or F-A-C-T-S? I don't know, it doesn't matter. But anyways, Elko is used not only in John 12, 31 and 32, but it's used in John 6, 44, when Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And he kind of repeats that in John 6, 65, and that's when in 6, 66... Many turned away and followed him no more. You know why? He did what I'm doing. He took away everything from your ability to find merit in yourself and in your own decision to repent and believe. He took it all away. Nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And nobody comes to the Father unless I draw them. It's all a matter of a divine salvific act. And many turned away in John, strangely, 666. And followed him no more. So I can almost say the test of a preacher, if he's preaching the right gospel, is over the course of your ministry, have many turned away and followed no more? Yes, well, then you must be right on target. So, but then, of course, he turned to Peter, who's going to be his representative, and said, All right, why don't you go too? And Peter said, where are we going to go? We can't go to hell because you took that away from us. So where the hell are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, so what are we going to do? Where are we going? That wasn't a very strong commitment. You've got to commit yourself and follow Jesus. Well, that wasn't too strong of a commitment. Where else can we go? 
you know, all the other rabbis don't have this hopeful message. So, that's John 6, 67, etc. So, this is how the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the judgment on the sin. It's for this purpose that I came into the world, he said, ice crema, for a judgment. Not ice cream, but ice crema. E-I-S-K-R-I-M-A. So, if you have a memory problem, you can use that memory. I came into this world for ice cream. I heard the ice cream was good down here. It's ice, E-I-S-K-R-I-M-A, ice crema, for judgment. That's what it really means. That those who see, those who rather who are not seeing will see, and those who are seeing will become blind. Those who think they understand this, they get shut down. Those who are puzzled get their eyes opened. That's the judgment. And that's what's happening right now in history, and that's what's happening right now in this building, in even some of the overflow rooms, even in the people that refuse to come here for the prayer, the offering, and the worship service, and only want to get the message. Even those, even those pagan outsiders, it's happening. Just kidding, that group. We're all one in Christ. The obedient and the lazy recalcitrant, all in one. Now, here we have it. Now, so I'm going to close. So not only is, yes, the subject is judgment in John 12, 32, but in 12, 30, or 31, rather, but in 12, 32, it's I. If I'm lifted up, I will draw, and so all people can be then also demonstrated there. Not only all people, but all of creation, all things, all of the universe, and all of history can be gathered up in him. And that's what this is all about. And therefore, in Romans, Revelation 5, John finally hears the voice of all creation in 5.13, and he said, I heard all creation. Pan katisma. That which is in heaven, angelic creation, and redeemed humanity, and on earth, humanity, and under the earth and under the sea, the dead, the fallen so-called angels, the fallen Nephilim, etc. And every being that is in them say, blessedness and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the Lamb for the ages of the ages. Amen. All of creation says that in all of its times. And that's why Paul wrote these words, and I will close with these in Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. Paul wrote these words in Ephesians, which is a letter to the Laodiceans, written from a prison in Apatea, where Paul was incarcerated in a very small cell, and wrote these words to a group of graced-out pagans that became an addressable community through the gospel that evoked faith in them. He tells them what happened to them, but he says first that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to Ephesians 1.9, according to the good pleasure of his intention for the administration of the fullness of the ages to bring everything to its sum total. That's anakephaliao, everything without exception, all creation, all history, all of humanity. To bring everything to its sum total in the Messiah, in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, that's a divine action, in accordance with the purpose of him who affects everything according to the determination of his intention. I will do all my will. Well, what's your will? That all men be saved, that none should perish. I will do all my will. I've stopped arguing with that one. I tried to argue for that for 35 years. I stopped arguing with that one. Go ahead and do your will. If it were my will, a whole bunch of people would go to hell. But let your will be done instead. Finally, in John 12, 33, Jesus explains, to wrap this up, he said this to indicate what kind of death he would die. That means that his death, 
One is the drawing away of all judgment from humankind and all creation, including the angels, to himself. It means, second, that his death and the kind of death he died is for the redemption of all humankind, all of creation, and for the redemption of history itself. I think Paul would agree with Jesus. And emphatically, as we're going to see more and more, all of this fits with our series Better Call Paul because here is a demonstrable agreement, a documented, copiously documented agreement between the apocalyptic gospel of Paul and both the gospel and the apocalypse of John. Amen. Thank you for this opportunity, Father. We pray a blessing upon this coming week on the funeral service on Tuesday, on the nightly service Wednesday, and on this group of believers, Father. We pray that we will walk in the light that we've received today and that in that light we will see further light. And we ask this in the name of the one who is the light of the world, even Jesus Christ our Savior.